0: good morning again we're going to be uh concluding our study in the book of first corinthians long time coming uh but we'll be concluding it today let's go ahead and begin uh in a word of prayer lord we thank you and we rejoice in the sufficiency of your word the scripture we rejoice that it is an authority and it is the authority We rejoice that you have been kind enough to reach down to us. You did not have to give us your word. You did not have to make a way of salvation. And yet in your kindness and in your mercy and in your sovereignty, you paved this way for us through Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, that all who will repent and believe on him will be saved from your wrath. And we thank you for this. We pray that you might help us as we look at this book together. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are here, we are finally here. We are at the final and concluding message of our series in 1 Corinthians. And I hope and pray that uh, this book has been a blessing to all of us as we have gone through it for the last roughly year, a little bit longer. 1 Corinthians is, as we said at the very beginning, of this sermon series, a theology of Christian sanctification. You have seen week after week after week this slide up here that has 1 Corinthians, a theology of Christian sanctification. And I think that as we come to the conclusion of this book, um, I want to modify that statement just a little bit. One of the one of the things that I have found as I preach through different books of the Bible is that it is finally at the conclusion of the series that I feel prepared to begin preaching through the series. And so there are things that you would say, oh, I I should have brought out this theme or that particular thing uh, more clearly. Uh, So I do want to modify this just a bit. And this is gonna be, uh, I'm gonna say that this is the summary statement for the book as a whole. And I'm also taking this for the title of this particular message today. And we're going to modify this and say that 1 Corinthians is a theology of Christian sanctification in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by this, just to be clear, is that Christian sanctification ought not and cannot be pursued independently of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. One cannot pursue spiritual holiness One cannot pursue sanctification, one cannot pursue uh, um, uh, growth if one does not recognize and submit to the Lordship of Christ. Jesus Christ is my sanctification. Jesus Christ is my help, and Jesus Christ gives me grace. The theological teachings that these two things could be separate pursuits that is to say sanctification and the pursuit of Christ the teaching that those could be separate has shipwrecked more people than we can count countless individuals growing up in legalistic churches have come to adopt the thinking that they deserve the credit for their own spiritual growth and of course this is nonsense And countless individuals growing up in what we would call antinomian churches have come to adopt the thinking that their obedience is optional. It's just grace, 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 and I could do whatever I want to do. And 1 Corinthians is uh, situated to address both of these uh, exaggerations. 1 Corinthians takes these two things, that is my sanctification or my holiness, and it takes the lordship of Christ and the grace of Christ and it brings them together in such a way so that no Christian ever ought to think of holiness without thinking of Christ and no Christian ever ought to think of grace without thinking of obedience they are tethered together and linked in such a way so that they could never be torn asunder and this is what the book of first corinthians is about it is about what it looks like in the church to put these two doctrines together and to pursue holiness for the sake of and because of christ in light of this we are going to look at first corinthians as is my normal practice as a whole today we preached verse by verse through the book last week we concluded the final verse, and today we're going to just step back and we're going to go to kind of the 30,000 foot view and look at this book as a whole. And so there's really three things that I want to see today. One is kind of to remind us of some of the background information of the book, the occasion of the letter, so on and so forth. Then there are really two themes that I'd like to explore, the two themes that I talked about just now here in our introduction, and that is the priority of holiness and then also the path to it. Let's begin here with some background information. You may recall during our introductory message on 1 Corinthians that I did spend a good deal of time on some of the background information. And I want to address this now only uh, briefly and to look at it um, just in in uh, in, in an abbreviated form um, to just remind us of where we've been uh, during the last year in this. The author and the date of the book of 1 Corinthians is uh, really not debated um, at all. While there are books in the Bible that are uh, subject of much debate, uh, 1 Corinthians is not counted among them. The author, of course, is the Apostle Paul. Uh, There's internal and external evidence, both, of Pauline authorship. The book was most likely written in AD 53, 54, or 55. He's writing from Ephesus. And in addition to this, we know that Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthian Christians. Two of these letters are inspired scripture and are in our Bibles. And two of these letters uh, are missing now and not part of inspired scripture. The audience, of course, is the church in Corinth. Noteworthy is the context, and this helps us to understand part of what's going on in some of the commands he gives here, but noteworthy is the context that these Corinthian Christians find themselves in. They were living in a culture that was drastically different from God's standards of holiness. The city of Corinth was a Greek city that was destroyed in 146 BC and re-established as a Roman colony in 44 BC. The location, of course, made it an important trade route, located in modern-day Greece. Corinth is situated on a four-mile-wide isthmus. And today, there is a canal so that ships can sail through. But during Paul's day, there was no canal. But there was actually a four-mile track through here, cut out of the rock, so that ships were actually brought onto shore, and they were moved uh, by cart across this four miles, and then they were transported to the other side, and this would save these ships a 250-mile voyage around. Now, for this reason, the city of Corinth was a hub of activity. I mean, everyone was going through Corinth. It is believed that the population was between 80,000 and 100,000 people. Um, Just to give you a... um, Reference point for this, Wayne County, the entire county is 115,000 people, so a little bit less uh, than that. But more importantly for our study, more directly related to the book of 1 Corinthians, is that the, the city of Corinth was known for its moral corruption and depravity, especially its sexual depravity. Uh, no wonder, because it is a, or was a port city, and this is uh, all too common for these kinds of trade centers. Religious prostitution was rampant with a temple dedicated to Aphrodite. While Plato did live a little bit before Paul, it is telling that Plato referred to a prostitute as a Corinthian girl, okay? And so this culture was just rampant with this kind of behavior. We saw that the problem at the church of Corinth was that they began to blur the distinctions and the lines between the church and the world. The Corinthian church's problem was that they began to tolerate worldliness. They began to look like Corinth. And even in some situations, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, go farther than the Corinthians had gone in their depravity. For this reason, Paul needed to confront these people. The book of 1 Corinthians is what we call an occasional letter. An occasional letter is not a letter that you write uh, every once in a while occasionally an occasional letter in scripture is a letter that is written specifically to address certain instances or situations going on in a particular uh, context Um, this uh this means that um it was written for specific questions and observations that paul had made or heard of going on in corinth this is one of the reasons why um some uh commentators uh have been a little bit frustrated to find some sort of an outline for the book okay and the reason for that is paul was not writing thinking in terms of uh making the commentators happy in 2022 uh paul was writing to address certain occasions or certain uh, instances. Okay, here's this issue. Okay, now here's this issue. Okay, now there's that, and now there's that, and now there's that, and now there's that. And this is kind of the way that he writes this letter. You may recall that six times in 1 Corinthians, he used the phrase, now concerning, which is an example of where he is addressing issues that the Corinthian church asked him. What about this issue? What about this issue? Okay, now concerning this. Okay, now concerning this. He also used phrases like, it has been reported to me, or I hear that. Again, several markers that he is transitioning to a new topic to address reports that he has received. Taken together, the book of 1 Corinthians is highly practical, and it is occasional in nature. With this background information, I want to look at specifically two themes in the book that we've seen come up over and over and over again. The first one is the priority... Of holiness. In 1 Corinthians, there is a grand total of 100 imperative verbs. You recall what an imperative verb is, right? An imperative verb is a verb of command, okay? Or we might say that this is where kind of the applications are. Not that we can't get applications from other statements, but kind of the clear Applications. An imperative verb is do this or do that or behave in this kind of a way or stop doing this or act like this. Those are the imperatives. And in this particular book, we have 100 imperative verbs or verbs of command. Compare this to the book of Romans. Of course, you know the book of Romans is uh, a highly uh, doctrinal book. Uh, And in that book, there are 64 imperative verbs. Still a lot, but compared to 1 Corinthians, this is uh, much more dense in its commands to us. 1 Corinthians is perhaps, quite possibly, Paul's most practical letter in the New Testament. And hopefully you've seen this as we work through the book over uh, the last uh, year. Nobody can read the book of 1 Corinthians and walk away with the conclusion that our obedience is optional. Nobody can read this book and say, Paul is advocating for an obey-if-you-feel-like-it kind of theology, okay? You read this book and you recognize in the New Testament, and, and I have to stress this, because one of the things that has happened in American evangelicalism is we have come to the conclusion, falsely, that the Old Testament is full of all of that law and those commands and, and all of those strict rules, and the New Testament is just just grace and don't obey and it's all optional. And we see here in the New Testament itself, right in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, really demolishing this perspective. And in understanding that our obedience as Christians is essential to who we are, uh, and specifically our union with Christ. Just consider the fact, and and we saw this uh, early on, that there were different factions in the group, uh, the church here, there were different. groups of individuals, different maybe cliques you might call them, different people who were holding to different kinds of theologies. And there was one group of people here in the church at Corinth who were advocating for libertine values. Now, what 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 is this? Well, today we might call this person uh, the antinomian. Or to borrow a dictionary definition, we might call these people a free thinker especially in religious matters or a person who is unrestrained by convention or morality there was a group of people here in the corinthian church these libertines or these antinomians or these free thinkers and this group of people wanted to be free from the shackles quote-unquote and the restraints quote-unquote and the bridles quote-unquote of christianity it's, this is too restraining to me. It is too restrictive. It does not permit me to, uh, what we might say today, be who I am. It, it doesn't permit me to, to act in accordance with what I want to do. Uh, I want to be a free thinker. And it may be that this particular point is where Christianity today has the most in common with these Corinthian Christians, this libertine group antinomianism uh, being against the law or against God's standards has spiked in popularity today pastors today are less likely to talk about the need for robust sanctification and more likely to talk about how you feel wronged or you feel slighted or how you feel this way or feel that way let me read to you what rc sproul says on this topic he says i would say that one of the greatest problems in evangelical christianity today is the pervasive influence of what we call antinomianism antinomianism says i am saved by faith therefore i never have to be concerned in the slightest about obeying the law antinomianism says that the commandments of god have no binding influence on my conscience it is not just a distortion of Christianity. It is a fundamental denial of Christianity. Yet this notion is commonplace in Christian circles. You may recall uh, some examples of this from our own culture or think of examples where you've heard this uh, said before. One such example from our culture was an incredibly bad and uh, uh, heretical statement where Uh, Pastor Stephen Furtick said God broke the law for love. Some of you may remember that statement where he said that. This is antinomianism. This is, it's okay to break God's law. In fact, he said that God himself broke his own law. You may be familiar with the oft-quoted phrase, only God can judge me, which is a little bit of a, 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 a way to get this antinomianism into uh, the conversation that, oh, it's don't, you can't judge me. Or you yourself may have had an experience in your own life where someone confronted you and you thought to yourself, who is that person to tell me <laughs> what to do? If there is one thing that we have in common with our fellow man, it is the fact that we hate to be told what to do. The ESV Study Bible makes this remark at the root of much of the immorality and idolatry in Corinth, moreover lay a lack of appreciation for the holiness that God requires of his people. Do we not see that in our own culture today? Do we not see that in our own hearts today? And certainly this is true of us individually. I want to read to you some of the language in 1 Corinthians and highlight to you some of the statements that we have looked at over the past months here that highlight and emphasize the fact that God is serious about the holiness of his own people. Let me read to you some of these. We've read statements like this, and I have the references after each statement in case that is helpful to you. Purge the evil person from among you. Purging doesn't sound like it's something that's optional, okay? Or flee from sexual immorality. Or do not deprive one another. Flee from idolatry. Pursue strive, wake up from your drunken stupor, do not go on sinning, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. These statements and many, many others indicate to us and teach us that holiness is not optional, that God is serious about the moral righteousness, the moral goodness of his own people. Thus, we need to be cautious because what the modern culture is telling us, and even modern American evangelicalism is telling us, is they're telling us that any call to obedience whatsoever is legalism. Any call to obedience is legalism. And while it is true that legalism is a danger that we must avoid, obedience and holiness is not equal to legalism. It, legalism is something different than obedience legalism is something different from holiness they are not the same thing they cannot be used interchangeably don't make that mistake yes we do need to be able to identify legalism but we don't need to confuse it with our obedience to the word of God that is point number one actually point number two today but the first theme that is prevalent in the book of first corinthians is that holiness is serious and that we ought to follow through on those things the second theme that i want us to see here is something that we alluded to in the introduction. And I'm going to call it here for the sake of this outline, the path to holiness. And specifically, we're going to see that this is through Christ and Christ alone. Legalism would be pursuing obedience without Christ. But we are called to pursue it with and through and because of Christ. Obedience in the Christian life is clear. But this letter to the Corinthians also gives us the blueprints for how we are to get there i mentioned a few moments ago that there are 100 imperative verbs in the book do you know what else is prominently featured in the book of first corinthians besides these imperative verbs the phrase in christ or variations of that phrase like in him referring to christ Those phrases, in Christ or in him, shows up 20 times. Not only this, but Christ's preeminence is also put on display since he is called Lord 62 times in the book and he is called Christ 55 times in the book. It is absolutely and completely impossible to read 1 Corinthians and come to the conclusion that it is possible to have obedience apart from Christ. You know where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? It's not you can do three things apart from me or four things or one thing. It's you can do nothing apart from Christ. There is no morality outside of Jesus Christ. There is no neutral territory where the believer and the unbeliever can have common ground. You are either for Christ or you are against him. There are two options. Either you have Jesus Christ or you are immoral. <laughs> you can't have morality without Christ. You can't say, without Jesus Christ, I am a good person. You know what Isaiah 64.6 says, right? Isaiah 64.6 says that your righteous deeds are filthy rags. And this is a point that I have emphasized from time to time. I I would have, you know, in my fallen sinfulness and depravity, if I was writing that, I would have said, your bad deeds are filthy rags, right? The Bible says that your good deeds are filthy rags. Every human effort to be righteous apart from Christ fails. The book of 1 Corinthians makes this abundantly clear that if you are going to be righteous it is going to be in Christ. It is going to be through Christ. It is going to be because of Christ. Two options. You are in Christ or you are immoral. There's no third option. There's no neutral territory. Understanding this, we recognize that the believer in Jesus Christ never graduates from his need for the gospel. There is never a point in the Christian life where you can say that the gospel is only relevant for the unbeliever back there or the new believer. You are just as dependent on Christ whether you have been a believer for one day or for 50 years. Let me demonstrate this to you from the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at, I don't know, half a dozen or so verses here. All of these verses, in some form or fashion, they are elevating the supremacy of Christ and our need for Christ for something First Corinthians 15 57 thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ victory through victory through not outside of not apart from victory through Christ not through Buddha Joseph Smith Whoever else you want to put in there, but through the person of Christ, we also see that wisdom, wisdom comes from Christ. 1 Corinthians 1:30, and because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, and actually also righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Actually, do you remember when we preached through 1 Corinthians 1? Do you remember this section talking about a comparison between two kinds of wisdom? The wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And do you remember that we saw that God delights to abase the wisdom of man so that he can elevate and raise his own wisdom? Meaning that if you are seeking wisdom apart from Christ, God is wanting And is abasing that because only wisdom can come through Jesus Christ. You you see how we can't pull these things apart so that I can have wisdom without him. Sanctification, 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in, in the name of, in the name of, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Sanctification, washing, justification through Christ. We have commands also that are given to us and they are rooted in Christ. Here's an example from 1 Corinthians 6.15 to flee from prostitution and this is grounded in union with christ do you not know that your bodies are members of christ shall i then take the members of christ and make them members of a prostitute never where is this command grounded it is grounded in my union with christ because you are united with christ through the gospel don't do this The discussion on conscience issues. This discussion is grounded in Christ. First Corinthians eight eleven, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Talking about someone who's um, damaging someone else's conscience. The brother for whom Christ died. You ought not do that because Christ died for this brother. It's grounded in the work of redemption. Behave in this way because of Christ. Paul, likewise, is at liberty to ground his commands in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, we read this. I appeal to you brothers, by what? If if you were going to make an appeal to somebody and say, you need to behave in this kind of a way, what would the standard be? According to what standard? We talked about this at the the 9 a.m. service a little bit today. And we talked about the fact that there are some individuals who are saying, you can go to the culture and you can argue for truth, but you need to leave the Bible out of it because they don't believe in that authority. What is this saying? I appeal to you, brothers, by shared values. I, I, I appeal to you by this outside standard i appeal to you by jesus christ as christians when we appeal to one another and we appeal to the culture and we are making appeals for certain moral behavior and certain ethical behavior that is to be rooted and grounded in christ whether they believe in christ or not whether they are a christian or not because this is authoritative In short, there is no shortage of Christ in this book. Christ is the means to holiness. Now, if you want to know what legalism is, as we saw a moment ago, we we said very clearly that legalism is not equivalent to holiness or obedience, if you want to know what legalism is, legalism would be to take your pursuit of Christ and your pursuit of holiness and to separate those two things. To say that either I can't, just give me the list of rules in the Bible and I will get to work on me. I will lift myself up by my own hand, by my own strength. And I will do this and I will get the credit for my own moral goodness. That's legalism. It is also legalistic to separate those two things and to go to the other and to say, I can pursue a relationship with Christ. I can pursue... And love God with no regard for his rules or his standard of holiness. That's also legalistic. To separate those two things is what legalism is. It is to imagine or to think that you could somehow become holy or sanctified apart from Christ. Legalism is when you look at yourself and say... I'm not half bad. I've done a pretty decent job of cleaning myself up. In the book of First Corinthians, you have a strong emphasis on holiness, and you also have a strong gospel thread that is woven through the entire book that holds the whole thing together. Everywhere you turn, there's Christ, there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's the gospel, again and again and again and again. You have an emphasis in this book on divine grace that is absolutely essential and necessary, not just for initial salvation, but for daily and ongoing sanctification, If you are in Christ today, if you, are, if you are here and you have repented and believed on Christ, you are a Christian. You are, are just as in need of the gospel as you were on the day of your conversion. You are just as in need of grace as you were on in that initial moment. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. We need Christ and his grace. And he is so merciful. Because even when we do not obey, and even if we, and when we do fall into sin, His mercy and His grace in the gospel, all of it is sufficient enough to forgive us and to pardon us. So here's one thing that you ought not walk away from the book of 1 Corinthians thinking. Wow, that is a high standard. Okay, yes, we can think that. It is a high standard. But wow, that's a high standard and I've... Failed that, and well, que sera sera. Um, Christ forgives 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 and forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. And if you have failed, since you have failed, run to Christ he you realize that all of this grace that we're talking about means that you can and should and must run to Christ because he will not turn you away when you come to Christ that's the gospel (laughs) and we see that in first Corinthians so where do we kind of go uh, from here You are a new creature if you are in Christ. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You belong to Christ. You are redeemed. What all of this means, when when we say you're a new creature, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price, you belong to Christ, you are redeemed. What all of this means, very straightforwardly, is that you are not your own Lord you are not the master of your destiny. You are not the center of the universe. We might say it this way to be very clear. God is God and you are not. And so how do we apply all of this? This is a challenging thing to do. We're having a message over the entire book of 1 Corinthians and we're trying to apply the entire book of 1 Corinthians to us today. And so I would say, first of all, that today's The application of today's message is all of the applications that we've given over the past several months. So if you want to know how to apply this, go look at your notes and pull out all of your applications. And that's how you apply the message today. But I didn't want to just say that. Um, So I I chose some some highlights. I wanted to take... um, Some of the highlights from the book, some of the major themes of the book, and give to us those applications. So these are kind of a little bit recycled. I've reworded them a little bit, Um, but but these are some applications from the book as a whole. And I'm going to do something that I've I've never done before, uh, and that is uh, I'm going to give you uh, the longest list of applications I've ever given to you before. Okay. I'm going to give to you 16 applications today i've never concluded a sermon with 16 applications probably the max is five before okay but i'm going to do 16 today uh and the reason is because i'm trying to hit on all of the many 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 things remember this is an occasional letter there's been a lot of content in this book he's gone from here to here to here to there 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 and so these are kind of just a summary of some of these um so you're not if you're taking notes you're not going to get all these down because i'm going to scroll through them so don't panic if if you want them i will give them to you okay if if you want to get every one of them written down then i will email them text them whatever to you okay all right so here's here's uh our our 16 points of application from first corinthians rigorously pursue christian unity in the church we saw this right at the very beginning where Paul was rebuking them for being fractured and divided. As a church, cross you, church, we need to be united with one another. Again, this happens in Christ. We also saw in 1 Corinthians 1, this is particularly from the section on um, human wisdom versus, versus divine wisdom boast in the Lord, not in yourself. This is why God was cutting off human wisdom, remember? He was cutting it off so that everyone who boasts would boast in the Lord not in themselves, not look at what I've done, look at my wisdom, look where I've gotten me, but it's no, without Christ, where would I be? Next, rejoice that God's wisdom has chosen the weak and foolish to shame the strong and wise. God has done this on purpose so that he would shame those who think they could have wisdom apart from him. We're also called to forsake sexual immorality several times in the book. We are to practice church discipline. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 5. The immoral man who had his father's wife, he was supposed to be disciplined, uh, cast out of the church, um, and Paul said for the destruction of his flesh, uh, with the hope that he would eventually come back. The next one is this. Pursue reconciliation with Christians outside of secular courts. You remember this from 1 Corinthians 6, that we are not to take one another to court. He said... Don't you guys know you're gonna judge angels? Or are you are you incompetent then to judge trivial civil cases like this? The next point of application was do not be a stumbling block to those who are weak in conscience. We saw this in particular in eight. We saw a little bit in ten as well. That we are to look out for those who are weaker in conscience and not cause them to stumble. Now, our tendency is to do the opposite of this, right? Our tendency to be like, (laughs) did you see him? Did you see how weak he is in conscience? He doesn't even think you could do this and to trample over those people. And yet scripture calls us very clearly to look out for the conscience of the weaker brother and not to cause them to stumble in any way. By the way, this was kind of interesting but nowhere in any of this did we see a call to the weaker brother to, to change their conscience on this. Now, I do think that we ought to, but this was, the, the big priority was to the, the instruction was to the stronger brother, don't do this to your weaker brother because you could cause them to stumble or to sin. Uh, this goes along with that same topic, but surrender your rights for the sake of the gospel. We, as American Christians, have a tendency to think very highly of our rights, and Scripture says if you are going to cause someone to stumble, fall into sin, then you need to surrender your rights. The next one is this. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Many of you have memorized this. God is faithful and will not permit you to be tempted beyond your ability. Um, that probably doesn't sound as much like an application. Uh, we could say rejoice that God is faithful or worship him that he is faithful and will not permit us to be tempted beyond ability. The next one is run away from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do everything to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 11, partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. We're gonna do that today in your call call to to us is to examine ourselves to do this not flippantly but in a worthy manner the next point of application is do not be a church spectator this was a rather lengthy section on spiritual gifts (laughs) use your spiritual giftedness to bless the body of christ god does not give the believer the option to be a spectator only christian (laughs) To come only on Sunday morning, to only sit passively, and then to leave, and that is the extent of your interaction with the church, is to engage in sin. You are called to engage with the body of Christ. Don't be a church spectator. The next point of application is to do everything in love. Of course, you know where this comes from. 1 Corinthians 15. We spent actually a long time in this particular portion. Do everything in love. Remember where he said, it doesn't matter if you do this, if you do that, if you you don't do it in love, then it's pointless, right? Do everything in love. The next application is to pursue a rigorous knowledge of theological truth since edification requires intelligibility. That is a mouthful. We saw this because what Paul was arguing for is he was saying remember what he was saying that prophecy is better than tongues. Remember that whole part? He's, remember in that, in that section he said, "I would rather speak five words in a language that you can understand, you know, than whatever 10,000 words in a language you can understand." He was making the point. That, that, that we emphasize and that is God has ordained that he gets theological truth and he gets love for God, our love for God to our hearts through our minds. We could protest against that, we may not like that, but God has designed it so that it has to go through your mind. And so the call for us is to not say, oh, all we just need is love, but to say, I'm going to get that love and pursue that love for God and for others through theological knowledge, through a depth of understanding of God's word, to study, 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 read, meditate, pray over the word of God. And then the final one, this comes from 1 Corinthians 15, worship Christ for his lordship over all. You've Heard the phrase, and I've said it before, that there is not one rogue molecule in the universe. There is not one square inch of the universe where Jesus Christ does not cry, mine. All of it belongs to him. And one day, every knee will bow to his lordship and acknowledge his lordship. And the call for us is to worship him now. My prayer is that because of the book of 1 Corinthians, we would adore Christ more. My prayer is that you love Christ more today than you did when we started this book, and that you are in awe of him more, and that you are specifically in awe of the fact that not only did he give us these commands to obey, but he gave us the means to obey as well. That he said, I'm not going to leave them ill-equipped or unequipped to obey, but I am going to give them what the standard is and I am going to equip them to do it. And not only am I going to equip them to do it, but when they fail to do it, I'm going to forgive them for their failure to do it and help them to do it next time. Christ is everything to us. He is, he is all. He is Lord. If you are here and you don't know Christ, what are you doing? I, I, I can't... see. I, I, it would be so convenient if, if God put some kind of visible mark on everyone who was a believer and we could just easily... Kind of just go through it in that okay yeah da, 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 da. I don't know I, I can't see the heart God can see the heart and so I'm appealing to you I, I'm, I'm appealing to you if you are no matter who you are but if you are one who comes here week after week after week and you know that you're unregenerate that you're not in Christ what are you doing Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ is sufficient, and he is Lord. My prayer is that we would see Christ as more essential to our daily lives than we thought previously, and that we would seek him more vigorously than we ever have in our entire lives. The book of 1 Corinthians, this book is a theology Of Christian sanctification in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what we need in this very moment of our Christian lives. Thank you, God, so much for your grace to us and the unmerited favor that you have bestowed upon us, the the fact that you have given Christ to die on a cross for our sins. You have caused us to be born again. And I pray that if there are any here who have not been born again, those who are unrepentant, those who have not believed on Christ, that you would uh, give them a sense of urgency, that you would intervene, and that you would save their souls. We thank you for your grace to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.